Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Criminal Discourse. I'm Maddie. And I'm Trish. And we just wanted to take a minute before we get started on our case today to just thank especially those that are have been leaving us reviews. We've gotten a lot of great reviews. There were some recently that just really touched us, and we just wanted to thank you so much. There were listeners in San Jose, California, and South Jersey. It just really, it's so special to us, and we do put a lot of love into this podcast. So knowing that there are people out there that love listening and appreciate it, and if you guys have any feedback for us, it just really makes our day. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you. So we'd like to thank our listeners in New York State. We know you're getting hit hard right now up there with COVID-19, so we hope you're staying safe and trying to stay as healthy as you can. But we'd like to thank our listeners in New York City, in Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Long Beach, and Greenwich. We'd also like to thank our listeners in Flatbush, Larchmont, Poughkeepsie, Newburgh, Utica, Kira's Joel, Kingsbridge, Ithaca, Syracuse, Plattsburgh, Albany, Huntington, Bainbridge, Corin, Ronkonkoma, Greenberg, Woodside, Morris Heights, Scarsdale, Gloversville, Lathan, Sunnyside, Queensbury, West Albany, Port Washington, East Pachiku, Woodrow, Fort Hamilton, Rome, Rosedale, Gravesend, Glensdale, Rochester, Fairpoint, and Medina. Thank you so much. So where are we going today, Maddie? Today we're going northwest to Washington State. Well, Oregon and Washington. I wanted something a little bit lighthearted. I'm sure that we all have felt sort of the the just stress of the ongoing situations and and everything that we're dealing with. So I wanted to kind of give something that's a little less, you know, gore and murder and hatefulness. So hopefully this will be sort of a a lighthearted experience. And then I know your episode next week, Trish, is going to be a chop full of murder. Correct. So... (laughs) We'll get right back to it. So we're going actually to the 1970s. So good years. Good, the 70s. Do you remember them fondly? So I was born in the 70s. You were so, born, yeah. yeah, I remember. <laughs> so on November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt carrying a black attache case approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute trip to Seattle. Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727, and took a seat towards the rear of the passenger cabin. He ordered a drink, a bourbon and soda, while the flight was waiting to take off, and besides that, he was a quiet, normal passenger, just waiting to get to Seattle. So the flight took off on schedule at 2.50 and was approximately a third of the way full with passengers, so there were around 36 passengers total. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaefer. She was a flight attendant situated nearest to him in a jump seat attached to the air shaft door. So in the back of the plane, the rear door, there's a little jump seat there that the stewardesses or flight attendants were sitting in. Now, Florence thought that the note was just like his phone number or that he was trying to flirt. And so she just didn't open it and put it into her purse. And then he leaned toward her and whispered, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And it's it's not a pickup line. <laughs> So when Florence opened the note, it was printed neatly in all caps that he had a bomb in his briefcase, which you would think that just that comment would make that clear, but apparently he still wanted her to go back to the note. So Cooper then tones Florence to move and sit beside him, which she did, and she asked to see the bomb. Cooper slightly opened the briefcase, enough for Florence to see eight red cylinders attached with insulated wire and along with that what seemed to be a cylindrical battery. He then made his demands. He made her list everything out and, and 
and write everything down so that she could communicate to the pilot. He demanded $200,000 in negotiable American currency, which in today money I saw was like $1.2 for parachute and that a fuel truck be standing by in Seattle to refill the plane. Florence took those instructions to the pilot, William Scott, who communicated with the ground crew. The crew at Seattle Airport communicated with local and federal police to let them know that they had a hostage and hijacking situation on their hands, which apparently at this time was fairly common. I know we had the Albert Gway case, which was more, you know, not a hijacking situation, but a bomb on a plane and just talking about airport securities and things like that. And at this time, there just was none. So you could come onto a plane with pretty much anything. And people did this somewhat often. Mm, Another reason I don't like to fly. (laughs) Well, this was in the 70s. (laughs) So the flight to Seattle is only 30 minutes, which doesn't give much time for each team to organize and for the ransom to be collected and for them to get an action plan in place. The plane circled Seattle for almost two hours, and the other passengers were told that they couldn't land yet because of a minor mechanical issue. The president of the airline gave approval to pay the ransom and instructed all employees to comply with demands. So could you imagine how calm those stewardesses had to be keeping all of the those passengers just saying that there's like a mechanical difficulty for two hours. I'm not the greatest flyer because, you know, I, I don't like to fly. I mean, I've flown, but I don't like it. I mean, I get very uncomfortable. I mean, I've even had a panic attack in the air. Oh, my gosh. No, they are unsung heroes doing their job. Mm-mm. Someone like me, I would freak out. So when we do our world tour, are we going to like only be able to do live shows on cruise ships or something? Or how's that going to work? <laughs> <laughs> I figured we'd start with a bus tour around the U.S., (laughs) then we could drive to Canada, Mexico, heck, even South America. We got the whole North and South continents taken care of already. All right, well. I don't need to get on a plane. (laughs) I mean, I will if I have to. (laughs) Sorry, listeners in Europe, you won't be seeing us anytime soon. I'll remote in from the studio. Oh, my gosh. So, like I said, they circled for almost two hours. In Seattle, the FBI was able to obtain the ransom with the help of local banks. It consisted of $10,020 bills, most of which were issued by the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, which gives them the letter L at the start of a serial number. They took microfilm of each bill so that they could later identify them, because that's you know, one of the best ways I would think to catch a thief is to find the bills that match the serial numbers. Side note, if you find old $20 bills, there are search engines online that you can use to find out if they're part of this ransom or any ransom that the FBI is searching for. So that's kind of fun if you just find old money. What do you do? Do you just Google that? Yeah. The when you so this was it was a link in the article that I was reading. But yeah, if you just look up like FBI ransom or search serial numbers, then you can find things where you can put in the serial numbers like they've made all of that public for especially these older cases. So you can put the money, put the serial numbers in and see if they're related. Okay, something to do why we're all shuttering in place. Check and see if your money was ever some ransom money. There you go. Maybe we should come up with like a list of activities people can do. There you go. That's number one. Check and see if any of the money in your purse or wallet was ever used as ransom money. They were also able to get four military-grade parachutes, but Cooper rejected them, stating that he wanted civilian parachutes with a manual ripcord. So me, not knowing anything about parachutes, I was like, well, what's the difference? Apparently, the military style, they have what they call a static line. So... 
a cord is attached to one end of the aircraft and the other is at the top of the deployment bag. So when they jump, they're not pulling on a cord and saying when they want the parachute to open. It's just based on their distance from the plane. Yeah, I've seen that in the movies where they jump out the back of the plane on that tethered line. Right, exactly. So he did not want that. He wanted the the manual civilian chute where he would pull the ripcord himself. At 5.24 p.m., they radioed that all demands had been met, and at 5.39 p.m., the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It was more than an hour after sunset, and Cooper instructed the pilot, William Scott, to taxi the jet to an isolated but brightly lit area. He also requested that all the window shades be drawn to protect against snipers. Al Lee, the operation manager of the airline, approached the aircraft dressed in normal clothing as opposed to his pilot's uniform because he was afraid that he would confuse it for a police uniform and think that it was a an officer that was coming towards the plane. He went up the stairs and delivered the knapsack filled with cash and the parachutes to one of the stewardesses, Tina Mucklow. Once the delivery was completed, Cooper ordered all passengers, Schaefer, so Florence Schaefer, the flight attendant, and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane. At this point, only the pilot, co-pilot, Tina, the flight engineer H.E. Anderson, and Cooper himself remained on the plane. While the plane was being refueled, he revealed the next step to his plan. They would be heading to Mexico City. He instructed the pilots to fly at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, which would be about 115 miles per hour and at a maximum of a 10,000-foot altitude. He further specified that the landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff or landing position, the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and the cabin remained unpressurized which he must know a lot about planes because I didn't know planes could do any of that. He had to have had some knowledge with how this all worked. He had to have knowledge, obviously, of the parachuting, because that, I don't know that that's common knowledge. And then of the plane itself to know, like, what speeds they could go, how far they could go, all of these different pieces. The co-pilot explained when they were reviewing these plans that under those conditions, so going so slowly and so low, they couldn't make it to Mexico City without a second refueling. So together they decided to stop in Reno to refuel the plane. So... Cooper wanted to take off with the door open and the staircase down. And the way this plane is, the staircase is actually towards the back of the plane, not off the side. So it's the same as when you see like the paratroopers jumping that are jumping out of like that back door. That's how the plane is set up. So he wanted to fly with that open and the staircase down. But the airline objected, stating that it wasn't safe to take off with the staircase down. Cooper insisted that it was safe, but he said that he wasn't going to argue and waste time and it would be lowered while they were in flight. They took off at 7.40 p.m. towards Reno. The FAA had asked for a face-to-face meeting with Cooper during the refueling, but that request had also been refused. After takeoff, Cooper told Tina to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. Tina noticed Cooper tying something around his waist as she headed towards the cockpit. At approximately 8 p.m., so about 20 minutes after takeoff, a warning light flashed in the cockpit indicating that the stairs had been lowered. The crew's offer of assistance via the intercom system was refused, so they said, is everything all right? And he refused any assistance. The crew soon noticed a change of air pressure indicating that the door had also been opened. At around 8.13, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to a level of flight. So it seemed like the weight left the plane. They had to redress the plane to keep it on its flight pattern. The plane landed in Reno at 10.15 p.m. FBI agents, state troopers, and sheriff's deputies, as well as the Reno police, surrounded the aircraft. They quickly completed an armed search of the plane and determined 
that he was gone. The end. Bum, bum, yeah. bum. <laughs> so as far as the investigation, because at this point he jumped out of a plane, they have no idea where he is, who he is, what happened. The FBI began their investigation calling it Norjack for Northwest hijacking. Cooper had left behind fingerprints and also a clip-on JCPenney tie with a tie clip from which the FBI were able to obtain a DNA sample. They interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, and all of those who personally interacted with Cooper. Tina, the flight attendant, stated that he wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. During the flight, he had ordered a second bourbon and soda and he paid for his drink tab and attempted to give Tina the change as a tip. <laughs> and he had also offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. So he was very calm, cool, and collected. He wasn't nervous, jumpy, anything like that. And thoughtful. Yeah. And he tips her and offers to get them dinner. He's quite the gentleman robber. Well, and even the fact that there was no threats made to the other passengers on board. They were all let go. Like it wasn't even I'm keeping a couple passengers behind with me. Nothing like that. It was all very the, the purpose wasn't to hurt anybody. Truly, it was just to get his ransom and jump out of a plane. Tina said that he had also appeared familiar with the local terrain when they were in Seattle. At one point, he remarked that it looks like Tacoma down there as the aircraft flew above it. So he correctly identified the city. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20 minute drive from the Seattle Tacoma Airport, which was also correct. There was a man named D.B. Cooper in Oregon that was considered but was quickly ruled out. A local reporter named James Long actually misunderstood or misprinted, we're not really sure which, that the hijacker had given the name D.B. Cooper when in fact it was Dan Cooper. So even now, we all say Dan, like the D.B. Cooper, that's what this case is known as, when D.B. wasn't even the name he gave, he just gave Dan Cooper. It was just a reporter that got it wrong, and then all the other medias picked up the same thing. It's important to fact check. Yeah, and poor D.B. Cooper. Yeah. He didn't do it. Like, he just had the initials D.B. I'm not the hijacker. So now they were to the point where they thought the most successful way to find Dan Cooper would be to pinpoint exactly where he landed. To begin, they did a recreation and William Scott piloted the aircraft used in the hijacking in the same flight configuration. FBI agents pushed a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair and were able to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section, which confirmed that around 8.13 would have been exactly when he jumped. One of the biggest factors in trying to locate where he landed would have been when he pulled the ripcord in his descent, but because he wanted the manual ripcord, that's not known, so that explains better why he didn't want the static line that would have been on military parachutes. At that moment, the aircraft, so at 8.13, the aircraft was flying through a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis River in southwest Washington. Initial calculation placed Cooper's landing zone within an area near Lake Merwin, an artificial lake formed by a dam on the Lewis River. FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountains wilderness on foot and by helicopter. They started also doing door-to-door -door searches of farmhouses. Other search parties ran patrol boats along the lake 
and also Yale Lake, which is just east of Lake Merwin. No trace of Cooper nor the equipment was found. In March of 1972, so this was in end of November, this is the next March when they had things had started to thaw out because they had had winter, everything was iced over. So it was this was the beginning of spring. A search party was started consisting of FBI agents aided by almost 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers. They conducted search ground searches of Clark and Colwitz counties for 18 days in March and then an additional 18 days in April. This search party is crazy, right? Am I not? Yeah. We've seen less for like missing children and people that could have been murdered and it just seemed like a lot for $200,000. I don't know, like... It seems like a little bit of overkill. But I see the other side of it, that if you don't do a full court press, they have to really try to find this person and stop them from getting away with it. Otherwise, how many people would think of trying to do the same thing? Which I agree. Besides me, I'm not getting on a plane, nor am I jumping out of it. (laughs) But you wouldn't, like, I would rather spend that money, say, putting higher security measures in place for future flights or things like that. It just seemed like a whole lot. And, and I guess, too, it's the fact that they came up with nothing. So in all of these searches, nothing was found. They also enlisted um, an electronic explorations company, which is a marine salvage firm, to do a submarine search of the depths of Lake Merwin. It was one of the most extensive searches in U.S. history, and nothing was found. By the five-year anniversary of the hijacking, the FBI had considered more than 800 suspects and eliminated all but two dozen from consideration. Now, if you look at this case and you start to read into articles and things, there are a ton of suspects. Most of them were military or ex-military, you know, people that may have had problems with the airlines and all these different things, but there's too many to go through them all. So I just picked out my favorite or the one I think in reading all the different pieces, the one I felt most fit who it could be. My favorite suspect is Walter R. Recca. Now, he is a Michigan native, a military veteran, and an original member of the Michigan Parachute Team. Recca gave Carl Lauren, which is was one of his best friends, permission in a notarized letter to share his story after he died in 2014 when he was 80 years old. He also allowed Lauren to tape their phone conversations about the crime over a six-week period in 2008. In over three hours of recordings, Recca gave new details about the hijacking that the public had not heard and wouldn't be released by the FBI until 2015. So five years before, he's giving all these details that had never been released to the public. In his account, Recca describes the hijacking and where he landed, which was near Clay Alum, Washington, which is about 100 miles northeast from Lake Merwin, where the original investigation led. However, the pilot, William Scott, in a completely separate statement had said that the flight pattern was actually farther east than what was done in the recreation, so that would follow along. Recca also described after landing what he did, which matches witness testimony retrieved years later from a dump truck driver and Clay alum. According to written testimony, Jeff Osiadas was driving his dump truck near Clay alum the night of November 24, 1971, when he saw a man walking down the side of the road in the inclement weather. Again, it was a rainstorm at that time. He assumed the man's car had broken down and he was walking to get assistance. He didn't have room in his truck to pick him up and he continued towards his destination, the Tinaway Junction Cafe, just outside of Clay alum. After ordering coffee, the man from the side of the road also entered the cafe looking like 
quote, a drowned rat. The man sat next to him and asked if he would be able to give his friend directions if he called him on the phone. Osiadas agreed to this and spoke with the man's friend, giving him directions to the cafe. Shortly after that, Osiadas left for Grange Hall to play in a band. The man offered to pay for his coffee and then the two amicably parted. So the interesting part about this isn't really that interaction, but the fact that in 2008, Rekka is giving this description of this is what happened. And then later around 2018, they were able to find who this dump truck driver was and actually get his version of it. And it matched almost exactly. In 2018, four years after Rekka's death, he was brought forth as a suspect by his friend Carl Lauren. On January 8, 2019, a book was published on Cooper titled Getting the Truth, I Am D.B. Cooper, which aligns Rekka as the most likely suspect. However, this most likely is not going to be investigated or confirmed any further by the FBI. That is because on July 8, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigative resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Local field offices will accept legitimate physical evidence related specifically to the parachutes or ransom money, but that's it. But I wouldn't think it would be that hard to rule them in or out. You have the DNA from the tie clip. Why not just compare it to Rekka? There have been so many suspects that they just don't want to waste any more time. And and people have been trying to make money off of this for a long time. So you'll see documentaries and books published and all these different things trying to find out who this person is. And I think the FBI is just kind of sick of it. So, <laughs> so they're pretty much to the point where they'll take physical evidence, but they're not just going to test people's DNA because of what... But, based off of someone's word. I just thought it would be really simple. You have a database, just run your suspects through it. Do we know what Reckitt did with the money? I mean, if he was Dan Cooper, what he did with it? When he passed, there was a lot of money that was given to his family. And I believe they reference in the press release aligning Recca with D.B. Cooper that they have traces of where that money was spent throughout his life. But at the same time, a lot of the other suspects that, that people have put forward have showed the same or similar evidence to show that people, you know, came out of the woodwork kind of with money. So they do cite financial links to say where that money has been spent, but that's also something that's been listed with other suspects. So I didn't go too far into it. John List was actually listed as a suspect as well. John List from Westfield, New Jersey? John List that killed his mother and then his family. Yeah. Yep. He was listed, but kind of just because why wouldn't somebody that killed their family do this? But there was no real tie to the crime. It was just, I think, listing anybody that was well known to have committed crimes in and around that time. So there you go. The mystery of D.B. Cooper, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, continues. We still don't know where he is. What happened to the money? If you have your $20 bills, look them up. Check them out. You might have D.B. Cooper money. So thank you so much for listening to our episode today. If you're bored and you need something to do during your quarantine, like we said, you can check your bills. Or you could go back and listen to our previous episodes. We've What are we up to now, Trish? What episode is this? This would be episode 38, I believe. 38. So there's a whole lot of content if you want to go back through the past and listen to other episodes, something to keep you busy. There are also other podcasts out there. You know, I would recommend Date with Dateline is one that I listen to. Um, I've gotten into Court Junkies. Court Junkies? Yeah. The three most recent episodes I listened to dealt with the Harvey Weinstein trial, and it was pretty interesting. Oh, 
Very nice. So there's plenty of podcasters out there that we can listen to to keep ourselves entertained. Thank you so much for being one of our listeners. If you want to watch something on Netflix that I came across, oh, oh gosh, um, what is the name of it? It's a show is Tiger. Oh, yes, Tiger Kings. If you want to see what I would describe as a docuseries dumpster fire, please check it out. It is entertaining. It revolves around people who run these big exotic animal parks. It's fascinating. There's a little bit of true crime involved, some mystery. I think the tagline underneath is murder, mystery, and mayhem or something like that. Okay. I'm really excited to get into it. I mean, it's, it's, it'll blow your mind. You'll love it. It involves some cat cults and some guy who calls himself a doctor, but he's a doctor of the mystical arts, you know, like Dr. Strange. <laughs> and some guy calls himself Joe Exotic, and he's in this polygamous gay marriage in Oklahoma. I didn't even think that was legal. It is fascinating. Do yourself a favor, time yourself out, and watch it. Awesome. Well, thank you guys again. And then you can visit us at criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. We also have a Facebook page by the same name. And we have an Insta. Yes, Criminal Dis pod d-i-s-p-o-d that's growing rapidly so thank you all so much again stay safe well no i'm gonna let trish do her thing go ahead do your thing because i'm not stealing it thank you maddie well in this time when we are so uncertain as to what's going to happen and we're shuttering in place and some of us are fortunate enough to be working from home it is an unprecedented crazy time so let's take a moment to regroup and we'll get through this together so from maddie and i please be safe and look out for one another. Until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.